Hello and welcome to the British English Podcast, the show that helps non-native learners better understand British English and British culture. In today's episode, I am blessed with the presence of my partner's father because of, uh, well, two reasons really. One, because he has a passion for cooking and has been a chef in multiple places around the UK, including the Hilton Hotel in London. And uh, the second reason is because he's gotten into the habit of doing voice messages on WhatsApp with his daughter, who often plays them with me in earshot. And I mean, these voice notes sometimes go on for 10, 15, maybe even 20 minutes at a time. And I've got to say, he manages to keep us entertained from start to finish. I thought, why not ask him about his relationship with British foods and the journey he has been on within the hospitality industry in general here in the UK, as I imagine some cultural things will be scattered throughout for you as a listener to, again, hopefully better understand the life of a Brit. Uh, just to say, uh, Paul, Stacey's father, was born and raised in um, in a small village in the Shropshire Hills, which is west of Birmingham, still in England, but not too far from the Welsh border. Also, I I should include that in this episode, Paul does talk about how involved he and his family were with preparation of meat. So apologies if you find that kind of stuff a bit triggering. But yes, please enjoy this interview between myself and hopefully my future father-in-law, Paul. Sorry to get all analytical on you for a second, but from seeing the statistics of what people listen to this show on, it is safe to say that you are most likely using Apple Podcasts, Spotify or Google Podcasts, which means you could be missing out on the free worksheet for this specific episode, which teaches you at least 10 phrases totally free. And there's more, because upon getting access to this week's free worksheet, you actually unlock access to every single free worksheet I've ever made, which is well over 100 episodes. So that's 100 times 10. Let me do my calculations. Oh my God, you are losing out on learning a minimum of 1000 phrases for free. I know, I know you're thinking, Hmm, Eh, it won't be convenient though. I just want to open my podcast player, select the latest episode and get on with my day. Well, I know that feeling all too well. So I went and built an app for this very reason. You can download the app, open the free worksheets and listen to the latest podcast episode within three clicks. I tested it myself, meaning you can enjoy the episode whilst getting on with your day. And then when you hear a word you want to learn, unlock the phone and there it is right under the play button. It's amazing. And did I mention completely free for you? It cost me a fair amount of money to build. So I'd love for you to use it. So yes, do us both a favor, pause this episode, download it right now and enjoy the free worksheet that complements this very episode. To do that, open the show notes of this episode and click the relevant link or open your device's app store, search the British English podcast app or BEP, that's B E. Oh, and if you're not wanting to get the app, then just head over to the website, thebritishenglishpodcast.com slash freebies. That's F-R-E-E-B-I-E-S. Go on, pause, download the app and resume. You won't regret it. I promise. 
All right. So welcome, Paul. We're in your house right now, just in the, the lounge or the dining room area and the kitchen's behind me, which is where you're going to be spending quite a lot of your day today, aren't you? That's right. Yeah. We've got some vegan friends coming over for dinner this evening. We've not seen them for some time. Yeah, it's just a great way of getting us all together. Uh, all the family's coming over. I'll be spending pretty much most of the day cooking over the stove. Yeah. yeah. And vegan, you say, is that something that you feel like is coming, becoming more popular? It definitely is, yeah. yeah. Definitely been a, been a change of the ways. Yeah, I suppose yeah, people are more conscious of the planet and saving Earth and all of that. I'm not a particular fan of it, really. I think we are carnivores and we should eat meat, but that's up for debate. So there is a meat dish this evening as well. Okay. For me. And you won't be forcing that on the the vegans. I may. (laughs) What would you say to a vegan who would say, I'm doing my bit, I'm helping the planet in my way, so I'm, I'm helping you in a way? What would you say to that? Well, I just think it's all about moderation, really. Everything in moderation. Obviously, we have a huge problem because we produce so much meat that's causing all these problems, running out of space to feed all the animals, etc. But yeah, I just kind of think moderation, really, which is what we kind of do in our family. Obviously, meat is an expensive commodity now, so we don't eat meat every night, you know, probably two or three times a week. And there's a lot of food, I think, that, you know, is obviously naturally vegan which you don't have to shout about as being vegan you know we eat lots of salads and always have done all my life I have and always fresh vegetables out of the garden etc but it just needs to be in moderation I think yeah and so how many meats would you eat in a week probably three meats okay yeah that's fairly reasonable I'd say but back in the day when you were getting into food as a profession which we will go into later do you feel like it was, you know, meat and two veg was a staple of the British diet? Well, when I look back, I realise I, I was very, very fortunate with my childhood upbringing because of where we lived and obviously my parents, etc. So we lived in rural, rural Shropshire, miles away from any town and certainly cities. We had a local butcher, a local village shop, and it really was just a tiny little village. But in addition to that, we had, when I was very young, we had pigs that we had in the garden. We had chickens running around. And from a very early age, I knew that, you know, these animals were going to feed us. Just accepted that. I mean, it wasn't a problem to us. I mean, the pig was called Percy. We'd come home from primary school and he would be up on the wall greeting us. So he was kind of a pet, really. Wow. But we always knew one day we were going to eat him. What? <laughs> Which is uh, so uh, maybe a bit weird, but um, yeah. So how many years did you have him as a pet? Oh, I was very young, so yeah. so I'm just trying to let me think. I was probably only about four or five years old. I, I guess we'd have him for a couple of years, wouldn't we? Right. Yeah. And chickens were running everywhere. Wow, this yeah. sounds like... Have you seen the show The Good Life? Yeah, I mean, it wasn't far off that, really. Mum and Dad obviously worked, so they, we weren't self-sufficient by a long, long way. And of course, my mum worked for the estate, for the military estate in the Corve Dale, which is surrounded with, with woodland, etc. So they would do the pheasant shoot, shoot duck, pheasants, uh, partridge, rabbits, all that kind of thing I was brought up with. And my earliest memories really of food was I remember we had a great big scrub 
oak table in the kitchen and it would be heaving full, piled up with dead pheasants, you know, rabbits, all that kind of food, which we would dress. So, you know, we would be plucking them. We would be getting all the innards and everything out and, and then we would eat it. An early age introduced to the idea of where your meat com- where your food yeah. comes from, and mm. and you were part of that process. Yeah, and I think what what is certainly different for most of the time now is these animals had the most glorious life because they were in the wild. Yeah, yeah. They, they were wild, and they they lived in a beautiful part of the world, and it was a quick death with a gun, and they me alive. Yeah, fair <laughs> enough. At what point did you feel like you wanted to? take it to the next level with your cooking and have it part of your well was it a hobby before a profession I assume always had an interest in it because of course my mum is a a great cook and she was the cook for the estate if you like so she would cook all these dinners and so we ate incredibly well and and dad used to grow all the vegetables in our back garden we had yeah pretty much every vegetable you can think of all seasonal so, you know, it was nothing out of season. I mean, we never ate lettuce in the winter. It was it was sweet potatoes, oh. all that kind of thing, leeks. And, yeah, from a very early age, I would be in the kitchen with mum while she was preparing all this food and, and all these dishes. And okay. she, she used to make the most fabulous meringues, which has always stuck with me. And as you know, you know, pavlovas and everything are still a big part of our life really <laughs> but yeah i was very fortunate and very interested in it yeah i i used to love it and can we just talk about the fact that your mother was in the kitchens of a you said a stately home or a, a great english country house is that right uh yeah millichoke park because we just did a, a mini series explaining that era and oh, how okay. popular it was and and how it was one of the biggest industries and how mm. so many people were involved in the upkeep of these right. houses. So she was one of those people. That's she right, was yes. In yeah, the yeah. thick of it. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, from a very early age, from the age of 14, she went into what we call, actually, no, I think she was 12. Yeah, she was 12. She went into service, which was working in these houses. Wow. And at 14, she was sent to Bedfordshire. Right. To a rectory, actually, to, with a vicar and his family. And she actually there, she used to look after their children and also cook for the house as well at 14 years of age. Gosh. And also, interestingly, and this upsets me even now, she was never allowed to eat with the family. She had to eat all her meals in the separate room in what they used to call the scullery on her own. Yes, as well. the scullery. The yeah. scullery, I thought, was the lower down kitchen that had sort of almost wet floor. That's from right. The- yes. Yeah. Yeah. So she had to eat in the scullery. And she was 14 and a long, long way from home. I mean, um, it was Bedfordshire. And, you know, this is obviously pre-mobile email, pre-anything, really. Yeah. And she used to send her wages home to her mum and dad as well. Wow. And then how long was she there? And then she came back to the home that you mentioned. Well, I think she was there for a couple of years. She'll tell you she was desperately homesick. Anyway, she came home and then she worked for the Berry family. That they own the um, the Millichope estate, still do. She actually started working for Lindsay Berry's aunt because Lindsay's parents uh, were both killed, and my mother worked in their in their house. Right. And did you live with your mum in that house? Not that one, but when Lindsay came of age, as you did, and and he was uh, about twenty five, he married, and then he moved into the the big house, the estate house. And um, 
Yeah, I mean, this is where we were so fortunate because in between this huge house was a, was a big bell tower. They knocked down the bell tower and that wing became our home. So it was a three-storey Georgian masterpiece, actually. Yeah. And yeah, it was a very cherished childhood. Right. So your mother was working in the kitchen, but you felt like you were almost living in this ridiculously nice place. Mm. I remember you said something that uh, you were a little bit embarrassed about getting (laughs) off the bus stop in school. Yeah, I mean, I went to the the local secondary school in Ludlow, which was, uh, you know, 11 or 12 miles away. So a lot of people, a lot of my friends didn't know where I lived or or anything like that. And it was only when I was playing in... um, the basketball teams or if we had swimming competitions and we were being dropped off home in the minibus and I would beg our teacher to drop me at the bottom of the drive because I was embarrassed for anyone to see where I lived because it was so grand. And I knew actually the circumstances of of a lot of my mates back then. Some of them uh, only had their mum, the dad had left or whatever. They lived you know, a very simple, frugal life, actually. Anyway, they badger the Mr. Elcock to take me up to the house. And so we'd go up the drive, which was probably a couple of miles long. And pheasants, of course, would be flying around and walking across the drive. The one lad at the at the back of the, I think his name is Stephen Pardo, back of the mini buzzes was shouting out, oh, bloody hell, look at this, Benson's got peacocks running around his house <laughs> so bless them they didn't know the difference between peacocks and pheasants but yeah and of course when we get when we got up to the top of the house which which is very very grand uh, there was this awful silence and you know you could feel it really that uh, gosh look where he lives and look uh, what we've got kind of thing uh, right it suddenly got so, awkward yeah and i was always very very embarrassed by it weird isn't it yeah and then and yes, you, we weren't wealthy and at I was, all. I was going to say, and they knew that you weren't the owners. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, yeah. Strange. So yeah. that's that's how you started to be introduced to cooking right from an early age. Mm-hmm. And when did you start to become a professional chef? Well, when I was fifteen, fourteen, fifteen, actually, I um, I got a job with my then girlfriend's uh, parents' pub. Sorry, Sue. And <laughs> no, she's not called Sorry Sue. <laughs> it was Trudy. So, yeah, Trudy? It, Trudy. Your yeah. mother's dog is called Trudy That's now. That's right, yes. <laughs> it's all getting a bit awkward now, isn't it? <laughs> That's why she called it her as well. <laughs> Don't tell Sorry Sue. Though. Sorry Sue. As you were. They had this uh, pub called Bennett's End on the side of the Clear Hill. Tiny little um, pub, really, but had quite a big extension for a restaurant in it. This pub was hugely popular. The food was fantastic there. And I used to wash up in the kitchens on a Saturday night. And, of course, while you're in the kitchens and you're washing up, you can see everything that's going on around you. And I just loved all the kind of excitement, really, and the pressure that was building up as the evenings used to go on for service. And it was kind of an adrenaline. You could see it was an adrenaline rush for the for the staff that were cooking, etc., not so much for me washing up, but yeah, I, I then started to get more involved in what was going on in the kitchen, started yeah. off doing the desserts and Belinda, who was, is the landlady, Trudy's mother, she actually immediately noticed that I had a flair for it. Um, I mean, it was a simple thing. We used to do things like banana splits and knickerbocker glords. This is going back yeah. you know, in the day when the, these were the foods that people used to 
you know, can you describe a knickerbocker a knickerbocker 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 oh gosh knickerbocker glory yes yeah so it's in a, a long coupe glass so a tall tall glass and then you would have your chocolate ice cream raspberry ice cream vanilla ice cream raspberry sauce nuts and then just loads of cream all over the top and then you'd flake it over with more uh, nuts etc right and did you do that sort of salt man sprinkle from uh, the elbow like that like no, the meme i've never done that <laughs> that's one thing that really irritates me when i see these well, don't get me wrong brilliant chefs but i i, I don't like, like the drama with they do yeah i can imagine that was the moment that somebody saw the talent within you yeah. And then you... And it kind of all have accelerated at a rate of knots then, really. I mean, most... When I was first there, I'd say I was washing up, then I would help in the kitchen, but I did a lot of bar work as well. And actually, I think everyone in life should do a bit of bar work. So mm. you get to meet what people are like, what they can be like. It is quite an eye-opener at times. Well, yeah, you, um, were, you were saying how the place that you work at now, there's a cafe... Mm. And you feel like you've seen some teenagers who were shy and, you know, not. Oh, yeah, it absolutely transforms them. All my children have, have done work, customer facing, you know, cafes or bar work. And I really think it, it's a bit of a life lesson, really. And they're all very confident individuals, aren't they? Yes, they are. Yeah. Yeah. And I think it definitely helps. And I've had people work for me that have been painfully shy, you know, almost in tears when I've suggested that they come out of the washing up and go on to the front and that I've actually made them do it and to see them flourish was just amazing actually yeah in confidence etc yeah and that probably relates to the listeners with speaking confidence you know when you're learning a new language it's hard to feel comfortable making mistakes and and Mm. sort of trying to speak to a stranger and you know, yes, creating yeah. conversation. Yeah, absolutely. So yeah. that confidence could transfer. So guys, get yourselves into a bar yeah. or a cafe and start working. <laughs> Maybe exactly, even yes. an English cafe. That would be good. Yeah, yeah, I can give them a job. Yeah, there we go. <laughs> Come over to Paul's way. Let's go to the escalation from, you know, doing desserts to then you were learning how to be a professional chef. And, and where did that take you did you stay in no no not at all so I'd always cooked always cooked at home always been interested in it so I was at the Bennett's end cooking there doing the bar work you know just a country pub but as I say it was hugely successful and very very busy and I knew I wanted more knew I wanted to work in a big environment so I actually just sat down one day and wrote to all the big um, hotel chains at the time Uh, so there's Britannia Hotels Hilton Grosvenor just on the off chance of getting a job, really. And then a couple of weeks later, I had a letter from the Hilton at Stratford-upon-Avon asking me to go for an interview. So I went along there and saw Mr. Warburton, never forgotten him, lovely man, had a good interview with him. And really, I never thought much more about it. But then roll on another two weeks, and I had an offer letter to go and work at the Hilton on Park Lane. Okay. And off I went. I literally packed my case, got on the train and went to London. How big was your case? Pardon the interruption, but I want to let you know about an activity I have created for you to access for free on the britishenglishpodcast.com slash freebies. It is a creativity exercise that helps you find ways to learn English whilst being in a state of flow. 
Being in a state of flow happens when we're totally immersed in an activity to the point where we pay no attention to distractions and time itself seems to pass by without any notice. I would say I am in my happy place when I'm in a state of flow because it allows my creativity to flourish. And I want to help you connect your learning experience with feeling this immense level of happiness that is entirely possible when studying. Who'd have thought it? Revising English can open up feelings of pure ecstasy. Don't worry, though, I'm not forcing drugs on you, but I am encouraging you to check out this new exercise I have created that will help you reach a state of flow, I mean flow, when learning English. Find the link in the show notes to thebritishenglishpodcast.com slash freebies. That is spelt F-R-E-E-B-I-E-S. And then click on the creativity exercise and we can all get high on life together. Remember that this episode, just like every single other episode on this show, comes with a free worksheet where you get to see some of the best native expressions that come up in this very episode, along with definitions made for you, a non-native learner. I've even designed it so that you can play the podcast episode on the same page as the free worksheet. It's super user-friendly, so head over to thebritishenglishpodcast.com right now and check out the free podcast worksheets or simply click on the link that says free podcast worksheets in the show notes of this episode. Back to the episode. Uh, not very big. We didn't have much in those days. <laughs> You'd come from a big house. <laughs> yeah. But uh, no, it was a huge step actually when I yeah. look back. But And again, no instant communication with family and friends no. then. So no, yeah. I had no idea where I was sleeping that night or uh-huh. anything. It was Hilton accommodation in Earl's Court. Well, I mean, that's not exactly a sob story <laughs> to go, oh, I had no idea where I'm sleeping. I'm sleeping in the Hilton. Well, no, we weren't actually in the Hilton. We were in their accommodations. They had, oh, right. They had houses in Earl's Court. Oh, okay. Where you could stay. And actually, they were pretty grim. Oh, uh, right. So you but, rock up uh, there with your suitcase. Yeah, and uh, report to work and off I went. So I was thrown into these huge kitchens. I mean, because obviously they did lots of banqueting there. I mean, the Hilton back then probably had five or six different kitchens on different levels of the hotel, each serving different restaurants on different levels of a hotel. It was high, high, high paced, very hot, very angry. It was completely different to how it's portrayed now. It was a completely different world. It was, you know, you were screamed at and shouted at. A lot of people were bullied in there. And that's how kitchens of that nature were back in those days. Right. I mean, you know, I, yeah. I mean, Gordon Ramsay encourages that stereotype. I tend to think kitchens are stressful. I don't know much about them, but I feel like... Well, I think now, well, I know now that it's completely sort of turned around. You know, a lot of chefs play classical music and no one talks, you know, and it's all very calm, very relaxed. Well, there's that phrase, isn't there? If you can't handle the heat, step out of the kitchen. Yeah, if if you can't stick the heat, get out the kitchen. Yeah. Okay, so you were in a stressful environment cooking for guests of the Hilton... Yeah. And what kind of food were you preparing? Uh, it was all pretty standard stuff because we're late 70s, early 80s now. But we um, want to know what that standard stuff is because as an outsider... Okay. Yeah, so it, it would be a lot of roast meat. 
roast meat. Yeah, yeah. Okay. I mean, beef, obviously. Quite a bit of, of fresh fish there, which I wasn't actually used to from where I was. I was, it was predominantly meat with what I was brought up with. Right. Apart from fish fingers. But it was all, there was a great chef, Robert Carrier, who kind of think he was one of the, one of the first of a celebrity chefs, along with someone called Fanny Craddock, who was also uh, very entertaining, but not necessarily great with her food, etc. Uh-huh. So uh, I think, you know, that, that was the kind of stuff that people were expecting. I mean, we did the traditional British food, particularly in the, I think it was the one restaurant was called the London Tavern. So that was basically grills, really. Lots of grilled meats, mixed grills are always a big thing. So a mixed grill was a piece of steak, sausage, gammon, liver, kidney, fried egg, chips, etc. So it was a, a big plateful. It wasn't calorific. It wasn't very elegant, uh, I say, really. Okay. Uh, when did you start to notice people ta- paying attention to the aesthetics of a dish? I think it all started changing probably, yeah, the 80s, I think it is when it started. It's Kind of when all these celebrity chefs started to be on the TV, I think the TV was a big turning point because, again, from my background, we had no idea of what food they were eating in London. And in fact, the only pasta I ever come across was a macaroni cheese. And and we loved it, but I never knew that macaroni cheese had pasta in or what pasta was. Uh. It was just the dish. But didn't you make... Mac and cheese as a young, you know, you were involved Uh, in the kitchen. No, I I never did. No, I don't ever remember doing that. No, I mean, Uh, Italian food, I mean, pasta, etc. was all alien to us then. And then in the 80s, Italian food started coming in. Yes, well, down in London, obviously, because it's so diverse down there. I mean, there was always Italian restaurants, etc. there. But it kind of wasn't out to everybody, really. And what would the hierarchy or the natural progression be of a chef? You come in as... Come in as a commie. Commie. Yeah, a commie chef. Oh, a commie. Yeah, C-O-M-M-I-S. Okay. And then you would progress. That was, that's basically your basic things. You wouldn't really do much cooking. It'd be very standard washing vegetables and that kind of thing. Learning the trade, really, right right from the onset. And that's where you started? Yeah. Right? And then you would progress then on to a sous chef, which would be the next level up. So then you'd be allowed to be helping the chef or the assistant chef. um, By doing what? Like actually, well, you'd be able to make a sauce, okay, or you'd be able to make the custard, or you'd be able to, you may even be able to cut the potatoes. You know, it's all okay. And how long does it take from being a commie to a sous chef? All depends on your ability and flair. And how I just raced through it. <laughs> I'm sure, <laughs> they saw the flair in the man. I never got to a, to a head chef or anything, anything like that. Yeah, I mean, it was so sous chef then. So you'd go from sous chef, then it would be, well, head chef would be, oh, chef de party, sorry, yeah, been a long time. Mm-hmm. Chef de party would be the next rung, and then and then it would be a head chef who would have total control over the whole kitchen. Okay, and you also have the pot washer as well in the pot kitchen. Pot washers, yeah. But they Most don't... important job. Yeah. And uh, Stacey always tells me whenever I'm I'm being slow in the kitchen cleaning up, she says... My father would always come into the kitchen and show everybody up by, you know, if the pot washer was slow, he'd say, give it here. And he'd roll up his sleeves as the general manager of the the, the business. And you'd do it three times as quickly as the... I still do that now. Oh, really? The one thing I have to teach people now is how to sweep a floor. Oh. Yeah. Seriously. The youngsters that come in at 18, 19, 20 years of age have never picked up a broom and have never swept a floor. 
And if you've never if you've never actually swept the floor, it's quite interesting to see how some people do it. And of course, me. Can you describe how they try? No, pet. Well, they're cack-handed. So you know, they body is all over the place, and it's one-handed, and they don't understand that the bristles are pushing the food or the whatever's or on pulling, the floor away yeah. from you. They, oh yeah, they just don't get it. Right. And they miss half of it. And of course, it drives me nuts. <laughs> so I very often just throw all my paperwork down and say, do you know how to sweep a floor? No, no. And then I said, right, I'm going to show you this and you will never forget this for the rest of your life. And then they get it. And it's fine. It's, Good. it's the same story with mopping a floor as well. Right. People don't know how to mop a floor because, ne- again, they've never done it. So they will literally wade through water all over a floor and I walk in and I said this is dangerous you can't just ignore it and your feet are going to get wet you need to clean it up yeah and they don't know how to operate a mop there we go I'm wondering how you would judge my mop sweeping technique we've been doing it recently because one of the dogs that we're looking after wheeze every night so I mop that up so I use the bucket you know get it wet put it through that drainer give it a twist yeah, dry your mop off. Dry your mop off, guys. That's it, yeah. And then do a little circular motion around That's the right. way. Yeah. Rinse and repeat. Yeah. Yeah? Yeah. In the kitchens, we always used to use, or still do, is we throw down tea towels then. Oh, dry tea I towels, remember that. Throw them onto the floor and then get your broom, turn your broom up the other side and you dry off the floor completely. Oh, this is good. And then me. that stops it being slippy because that's... You know, it's dangerous if you've got a wet, slippy floor, obviously, in the kitchen. Top tip. There we go. Throw down some tea towels. Yeah, and learn how to sweep a floor. Yeah. Okay, so aside from cleaning, the meats you mentioned, the Sunday roast, was that a big thing in the Hilton? Uh, Yes, yeah, in the grill. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, we used to get a lot of, well, yeah, there was a lot of Americans and also the Arabs used to come over uh, because it was the oil boom so the hotel was always full with those yeah and i guess that's when the things started to change really particularly when, with the arabs coming over you know we had to cater for those as well so new dishes would be introduced but it was predominantly the the roast meats steaks always been a top of the pile really right and okay. still is you know a lot of the time and are the arabs hard to please in in were they in the hilton then yeah i think it, it was an it was an interesting thing, really, because they had they were phenomenally wealthy because of the money they were making off the oil, but they had no understanding of, of the value of that money, particularly in the Hilton. I wouldn't say they were very demanding, but they they were quite. Uh, I suppose they were quite rude, really. Well, they were not quite. You know, they, they they weren't very pleasant to us. Okay, but they would tip. Very, very well. Uh, So you put up with that. So we would take it (laughs) every time. Fair enough. So you were at the Hilton for how long? Two and a half years. Two and a half years. And then was that because you you left because you couldn't handle the heat in Uh, the kitchen? I couldn't handle London. Ah. (laughs) Well, I could. Was it not fun for you at that I absolutely loved it, yeah. What was it like? Outside of the kitchen. We would work very, very long hours. And in those days, of course, in the catering trade, it, it, it was always split, what we call split shifts. So we'd, you would do breakfast and lunch, have a couple of hours off in the afternoon, and then you would work the evening shift as well. And that was pretty much the case for everywhere, really. And back in those days, pubs would close in the afternoon. A long, hard days, and we would finish work you know, probably midnight and then we would go out clubbing we had the energy and yeah 
So straight to the club from the kitchen, not like a, yeah. a pub or a bar or anything. Uh, no, we probably used to, there used to be a, a fantastic little jazz club right behind the Hilton, which we had free membership to. So we all used to just pile in there, really. And it would be full of great Motown superstars, all the soul singers of the day. It was a club that, you know, they all used to frequent. And it's a really small, little, intimate club. But yeah, I had some great fun in there. I yeah. can imagine. So does the industry encourage a lot of consuming of alcohol? And we could get to alcohol, food as well. But Yeah, alcohol yeah. was always a big thing. And in the latter, latter years, Drugs was was obviously prevalent in there as well. Right, okay. Yeah. Do you think it still is? Oh, definitely, yeah. Yeah? To maintain stamina throughout the day? Yeah. Right. And what about the... Because it's funny how some professions, like you look at a doctor and sometimes they're not in the best shape physically or you look at, you know, sometimes personal trainers, you're like, hang on, what's going on here? Mm. But with chefs... You're around food all the time. So there's a, a, an understanding that oh, it might be tempting to have a little nibble constantly. So you're grazing all the time. Mm. But then again, you understand what's in the food. So you've got a better relationship and knowledge of what you're eating. Mm-hmm. So what does that equal, would you say, for the general industry? Are people healthy eaters or are they very unhealthy and they just I eat what they can? I think they're definitely healthier now. They weren't back in the day. I mean, we would eat any old rubbish, to be honest. It was, you know, running around and just grabbing whatever you could, really, to keep yourself going. Yeah. But you had to be careful because you, could be, you couldn't be caught doing it. Oh, you'd be in serious trouble. So, um, But everyone did it and that's how oh, yes. they kept going throughout the day. Yeah. You very seldom had a proper sit down and, and have a lunch break or anything. In fact, I don't ever remember doing that. So yeah. a couple of years in Hil- in the Hilton, and then yeah. you left London. I left London, yeah. I loved London, and I still do. Um, but uh, I was partying too hard, and, <laughs> and it was time for me to retire back to the Shire. <laughs> so that's what I did. Bilbo Baggins comes back home. Yeah, so I then went back to work for um, Belinda again, who I worked with at Bennett's End. Uh-huh. And she'd sold her business and bought another pub, and so I was managing that pub called the fighting Cox in Stotterston little village pub again were you um, not head chef there no I was a kind of general manager really because okay. she she um she had another job uh selling fur coats in uh, Rackhams in Shrewsbury so I used to yeah, manage it but I did a lot of cooking there as well did you model the coats as well yes I did yes <laughs> I still do. <laughs> Should I go and get one? <laughs> Did you actually get any free coats from her? No. <laughs> Didn't want any. Okay. So While you- we're talking about fur coats, I'll just mention about when I was at the Hilton, we used to have the uh, the high-class prostitutes used to come in. Oh, wow. And they would be wearing a fur coat and nothing else. Oh. <laughs> yeah. How would you know? Well, we just knew. <laughs> <laughs> but I was, because I was so naive and from such a you know, rural area and, and, you know, it's my first experience of city life, et cetera. I, you know, I really struggled with it because these women were absolutely stunning. They were beautiful. They really were. And they were dressed immaculate. And yeah, and and my manager at at the time, you know, they would say, you know, we can't serve them. And I'd be gobsmacked. And they said, well, why? And they said, they're prostitutes. But you, you say they were dressed immaculately, but it was just a coat, right? 
Yeah, but there was a, we had all sorts of prostitutes in there, but they were always stunning, high class prostitutes. Yeah, oh. they must have made an absolute fortune. Yeah, did you wish you were one? What a prostitute! <laughs> <laughs> well, I was. That's in the next one. <laughs> That's after head chef. <laughs> yeah. Only joking, guys. Okay, uh, you went back home. You managed a pub. Did you say? Yeah. Yeah. So traditional village pub. And yeah, we did traditional food um, for pubs then. So now we're, where are we? Mid 80s, early 80s, mid 80s. So the things we'd have on the menu, what everybody wanted would be steak. Again, always steak. Skrills would be on there. Um, scampion chips was always very popular, as was fish and chips. And then that's when um, the more continental foods, I suppose, started coming in. So I remember we used to do lasagnas. Um, macaroni cheese. Yeah. Uh, what do you call it now? Mac and... Well, it's a nickname. Yeah. Yes. Mac and cheese. Mac and Americans cheese. Americans yeah. say that. So yeah, a few pasta dishes like that. Yeah. Just trying to remember what else. Mm-hmm. I mean, it was a classic things. We always had prawn cocktails for your first course. Which That's is, quite English. It's, it's a classic yeah. 60s kind of dish, which has remained with us. And, and, and I think a lot of people are a bit snobby about the food back then, but actually... They were good things, you know, a prawn cocktail made well is great, as is a um, uh, Black Forest Gatto. Uh-huh. I mean, that was everywhere and people sort of scorn at it now, but a good Black Forest Gatto is delicious. You know? Yeah. I suppose that's the, the way things go, isn't it? If it gets too mainstream, there's lots of bad versions of it and then mm. it gets a bad name exactly, for itself. Yes. But there is a good version and it's good. Yeah. Okay. Did the pub scene, uh, but now you're not a, a chef anymore. No, I um, I went into school catering, actually, after that. And I was at a prep school, boarding prep school, for 10 years as a catering manager there. And we had a great time there. absolutely loved it. So I used to do cooking with the children there. It wasn't just cooking food for the kids. It was, you know, entertaining for the uh, Christmas balls and speech days. We used to do weddings, etc. there as well. So it was... Uh, it was full on. Could learn quite a lot from there, actually. So yeah, yeah, I had some great times there. And then you decided to leave the kitchen altogether and become a a manager in different sorts. We will leave it there for part one of today's episode. Thank you very much for listening up to this point. If you did want to listen to part two and part three of this conversation, then you can head over to the BritishEnglishPodcast.com and check out the premium podcast or academy memberships. The premium podcast gives you access to the full conversation along with extended glossaries, transcripts and flashcards whereas the Academy gives you all of that plus exclusive videos and audios for the season-based episodes, explaining the vocabulary, exampling them, giving you quizzes, writing assignments and weekly speaking classes on Zoom. But if you were just here for part one of this conversation, then I thank you very much for stopping by. I hope you enjoyed the show. Do grab that free worksheet by clicking the link in the show notes. My name's Charlie and I will see you next week on the British English Podcast. <laughs>